are here in person, for all of you joining us virtually, we're so glad you were with us. If you've ever had a chance to travel out west, you may have been through either a redwood forest or a sequoia forest, where these are two of the largest and tallest trees. Sequoias are usually wider, redwoods are usually taller. And if you've been through any of these forests, you've probably seen a tree that is large enough that you can drive a car through them. They're so wide. Or if you've ever been in one of these forests, you can look up and you can see trees that reach three to maybe 400 feet high. We're talking about a 40-story building. That's how huge these trees are. And then if you have ever been in any of these forests, you've probably also seen roots coming out of the ground. Now, the image I'm going to show you, for those of you who are able to see right now that you're watching, uh, now just imagine some erosion that did take place in this image. But what you have are these roots that don't go so deep, but they go wide. The roots of redwoods only go about six to seven feet deep, but they go at least 100 feet wide where they are intertwining with the roots of other trees. You'll never find a redwood tree that is standing by itself out in the field or on a farm. You find them in a forest where they're surrounded by other trees just like themselves. And I think this is a beautiful, powerful image of what it means to be the church. That sometimes we can get stuck looking up or even looking out at things that are growing or things we want to grow, but where the growth really happens is with how deep are your roots, how strong are your roots, what is your root system? It's a root system that holds a whole redwood forest together, and it needs to be a root system that holds the church together. And just like a redwood doesn't grow by itself out on a farm or in a, uh, or in a forest all by itself, it's surrounded by others, we have to be surrounded by each other in a root system that's causing fruit to grow so that we can be the light in the world that God wants us to be. We're in a series right now called Church Defined. And this has happened for years, but especially over the last year, I mean, who is it that gets to, de- gets to define who the church is and who the church is not? Because you ask 100 people who the church is, you're going to get at least 50 different answers. So what we're doing now for an eight-week journey is we're just going back to the book of Acts, chapter 1 through chapter 10, where the next eight weeks we're just going to be looking at stories that talk to us and tell us, here's what the church is, the church defines, so that we can be reminded the kind of unity we've been called into, the kind of mission we've called to be a part of. And this morning in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, I want to start in the very beginning of Acts. Last week I preached through Acts chapter 2 where the day of Pentecost happened. There's an outpouring of the Spirit of God. It's the birth and the launch of the church. But I want to back up today to the very beginning of Acts chapter 1. And in verse 4, what you have is on one occasion, it says they were there and they were, some of your versions say that they were sharing a meal together. They were eating. Some of your versions is that they were spending time together. The literal phrase is they were Jesus was sharing salt with these people, which should let you know right there, Jesus was all into seasoning, salt, pepper, Tony's, maybe a little Louisiana hot sauce. It was their way of saying that they're together and there's hospitality and there's a meal and there's fellowship that is taking place. In verse 6, it says that when they came together, this word together is one of Luke's favorite words. It shows up throughout Luke and throughout Acts. And this is a word Luke keeps coming back to. It's a word that he uses to show that the church is always at its best when, it's to, when people are together, when there is unity and purpose and structure, that there's mission. And last week I, I preached all the way up to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where I think this is one of the best ways to read the book of Acts. 
through this lens. Acts 2.42 also almost serves as a table of contents, as a contents for you. This is what it means to be the church. That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And you have that throughout the rest of the book of Acts, where the church is centered on the teachings of Jesus, where there is fellowship across racial and ethnic lines, where there's breaking bread, there's sacraments, there are meals that are being shared, both communion and also meals where people are getting to know each other better, and there are, there's a commitment to prayers, that people are coming together to cry out to God. So this is a foundation, and then you read about like this, the they in Acts 2.42, and the they of the apostles was Jesus, even though they were all 12 Jewish men, the people Jesus called together, they were men from who interpreted the world differently, they saw the world differently, they approached the Roman Empire differently. Of the 12 apostles, Jesus had a tax collector who had pretty much bought into the system of the Roman Empire. Jesus had a zealot who was anti-Roman Empire. Jesus had fishermen who were often oppressed by tax collectors. It, just in that 12 was this diverse group of people. And then you read throughout the rest of the book of Acts where Gentiles and rich and poor, the movement Jesus launched was to be a movement of all people being invited, invited into the same family, the same community to be on a mission together. The church, when we come together, and when we worship, and when we assemble, and when we leave from a place like that, the question we should ask is never, did you enjoy it? The question is, did you hear from God? Did we encounter God together? I was reading a book recently called uh, The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Velotis. He's a pastor up in Queens, New York. And one thing he talked about was the difference between how conservative Christians, progressive Christians, and charismatic Christians sometimes approach Christianity and the church. And though I want to sometimes reject labels, sometimes they can be a little helpful. And the way he talks about conservative Christians is a lot of times cons more conservative Christians, it's about, how, it's about setting your head right. It's about knowledge. It's about the belief system. And even evangelism is often about arguing people into the kingdom of God. For more progressive Christians, it's often about social engagement and social interaction and living lives of compassion and being people of justice and equality. And then for charismatic or Pentecostal Christians, it's about an experience with God. How are we going about church in a way where we're inviting people into an experience? And then if you were to remove the labels, if you're able to see the screen right now, and you were just to see some of the descriptions that were up that are up there about the need for knowledge and how you think about God and theology and the church and a need for action in the world and a need for an experience. And, and I were to ask you which one is the most important to the book of Acts in the New Testament, we would probably have different answers. And some of you may say, well, I want all of one and maybe a little bit of two and rarely three, or maybe I want a little bit more of three in my life. If you were to read the book of Acts, you see that all three of these are vitally important to a launch of a church, to evangelism, to what it means to be the church, where there's the Holy Spirit who is on the move, where God is always doing a fresh thing among people, where there is a call to social action and to be people of compassion in the world and where there is a call to no matter what experience or what an action you have in the world that we need to be thinking about belief systems and who we are and what we're standing on. All of this is important. But in Acts, it's called Acts. And some of you in your Bibles... If you look at like the first page of Acts, some of your Bibles will have the Acts of the Apostles, and some of your Bibles have the Acts of the Church, and some of your Bibles have the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
There's a lot of acting that happens in Acts. There's a lot of action. Things are happening. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, you have the first command in the book of Acts. And the first command in the book of Acts isn't to go and act. It's not to go and preach or teach or engage in acts of service or compassion or to feed the hungry. The first call, the first command, the first imperative in the book of Acts is to wait. It says on one occasion they're sharing a meal together. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, that my father was promised, which you have heard me speak about. These people, most of them had been with Jesus for three years, had seen miracles, had seen healings. They are probably ready to do anything Jesus asked them to do. If Jesus asked them to go preach in front of complete strangers, they were ready to do it. They're ready to die for the cause of Christ. And of all things for Jesus to tell them to do is you go to Jerusalem and you wait. If you do the math, he's asking them to go wait. And the the equivalent of their waiting time would have been somewhere in six to ten days. Jesus was lifted up around 40 days after he died. Pentecost was 50 days later, which happens in Acts 2. So around a week, you have around 120 people who end up in a room praying and waiting. How many of you like to wait in your life for anything? Do you know they say that people who live in bigger cities, metropolitan areas like where we live here in Memphis, that most, the average person will spend two years of your life in line, whether it's at a grocery store or waiting online because you've called customer service somewhere, or in traffic, or at red lights. You spend a lot of time in your life waiting. When it comes to waiting, sometimes we're willing to wait. The more something costs, the more we are willing to wait on it, which is why Black Friday, some of you are willing to wait in line for hours, maybe even sleep outside, to even forsake family time so that you can get the newest iPhone. And to be honest, some of you may not even want a new iPhone, but you know if you go get it on Black Friday that you can leave your family for a few hours, right? (laughs) And there are some businesses who just know that waiting in line is a part of doing business, so they try to perfect customer service or find ways to distract you while you wait. So think Chick-fil-A. How good Chick-fil-A is with their long lines at Chick-fil-A, but they're pretty good about getting you through the line. And not only that, you have people who work from Chick-fil-A who aren't just waiting for you to get up to order your food. They're walking to you to make you feel important, to get your order, try to keep you moving. Because if they can just keep you moving just a little bit, even if you have to wait 15 minutes, because you're moving, you feel like it's going quicker. And a lot of parks like Disney have perfected this. The people are going to wait, but can we distract them? There's screens that are interactive and ways that they're engaging you. And then they put up the little signs that say an hour and 15 minutes from this point, knowing it's probably only going to be 50 minutes. But if we can get them through, they're going to get so excited that they actually didn't have to wait an hour and 15 minutes. Like They've perfected this. Waiting in line is something we have to do. And some of the research shows (laughs) that that 10% of people who cut in line are going to probably either get pushed or shoved. How many of you have ever pushed or shoved someone because they cut it in line? Anybody? How many of you have wanted to push or shove someone because they've cut it in line? (laughs) Cut in line. It just happens. Now, I was reading a lot of different things this week, trying to come up with a list of the five to ten things that we do not want to wait on. And here's basically what it boiled down to. Number five is we don't like to wait on the restroom, public restrooms. 
Because usually in public, if you have to go to a restroom, it's because you have to go. And if you have to go, you don't want to wait in line. Number four is concession stands. Because you know if you're at a ball game or you're at a concert, there's intermission and you have to go to a concession stand that you may miss out on whatever is happening out there in a performance. Number three is grocery store lines. And we really hate when we're in a short line or you're going through self-checkout and that's when somebody chooses to pull out 30 coupons that they're going to swipe, right? Number two. Uh, number two, if you next one, I forget what number two was. Oh, a doctor's office, of course. Doctor's office, dentist's office. And number one, I think we can all agree, is the DMV. Which, I want to just make a suggestion that maybe to reduce crime in Shelby County, that instead of sending people to jail or prison, just give them a six-week sentence at the DMV and let's just see what happens. <laughs> We don't want to wait for anything in life. It's hard. We're willing to wait for things. There are some things we are willing to wait for because we know it's going to pay off, but there are other things that, I mean, it's hard to wait for. It's hard to wait on your adult children to come back to the Lord, to wait on anxiety to go away. It's hard to wait on health to get better or chronic pain to subside. It's hard to wait on a marriage to get stronger. It's hard to wait on faith to be ignited or for God to move in our lives or to wait on not knowing how the next bills are going to be paid or what financial security awaits us in the future. Like There are some things it's just hard to wait on. And I think this is where the book of Acts can be helpful to us, both as individuals and as a church. The first command in the book of Acts is you wait on God. And I think this is God's way of launching a movement by, by knowing that this movement can't be launched by passion alone or giftedness alone. It's a movement that can only be launched by people being fully dependent upon God, fully trusting in God. So here's what I want to do just for a few moments. The church is called to wait by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. I want to give you five things the church does while they wait. And I want you to think, individually for you, which one of these do you need in your life the most? And then which one is, is one that you can focus prayer time on as you pray over this church as we learn to wait on God better in our own lives and as a church? Number one is this. Jesus calls them to wait. And the first question has nothing to do with waiting. Jesus tells them, go to Jerusalem and wait. And the very next thing is, in verse 6, is you have the apostles. You have people who look to Jesus and they say, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the first thing I want you to think about is how hearts are set right. That as we wait on God, it sets the heart right. So they're asking, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking about an earthly kingdom because they were expecting a Messiah to come to set an earthly kingdom right. They wanted Rome to be taken down. They wanted the kingdom of Israel to be restored like in the times of David. And Jesus' response is that you are asking for an earthly power, but an earthly power isn't what the church is called to be about. What the church is called to be about is a power in how you witness to the world of the faithfulness of God. This isn't about... Uh, better leaders or better legislation, as important as those things can be in life. It's not about that. What it is about is the church realizing that there is a power that has been given to every man and woman who has given their life to God, where there's a powerful witness that flows from you. So it's not about trying to get people into the kingdom of Israel. It's about all those in Israel realizing that now a message is meant to go beyond all borders, 
beyond legislation, beyond the Roman Empire, to the ends of the earth. This is a whole new kind of movement. And 2,000 years later, we have people who are still asking the same questions of being asked in chapter 1, verse 6. Of, okay, God, when are you going to restore this earthly kingdom? And Jesus was telling them, quit waiting on an earthly kingdom to be restored. And we need to quit waiting on earthly kingdoms to be restored too. You can pray for them. Pray for peace and restoration to happen throughout the world, which involves earthly kingdoms. But the kingdom that we are called to be invested in is a kingdom in which we realize that there is a powerful witness that the church is called to be about. And I want to talk more about that next week. So I want you to think to yourself, when it comes to waiting on God, how is God setting my heart right? Where is my heart maybe pointed in a direction that Jesus needs to redirect where my heart is being pointed toward? And then you have eyes that are set right. Because the next thing that happens in verse 8 is the apostles, these people, are looking up into the heavens as Jesus just floats away. So Jesus tells them, you're going to be a witness. There's a powerful witness coming upon the church. And that's his final word he speaks. And then Jesus is lifted up into the heavens. So the final departing words Jesus speaks is, the church is called to be a powerful witness to the world, to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus just goes away. And as Jesus goes away, you have people who are just looking up. And then you have these two angels, these two men of God, who begin asking, like, what are you looking at? Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now go back into Jerusalem. There are times where our eyes are focused on how the story ends. When Jesus is calling us, hey, look out. Right? You're looking in a place that is of God, but you're looking in a place. This isn't where your eyes need to be focused. Look out. Look, look at what God is inviting you into in this world. And as we learn to wait on God, how is God trying to change and redirect your vision? The next thing is we set our pace. When we wait on God, our pace is set right. What you have in verse 12 is they all do what Jesus told them to do. They went to Jerusalem. And in verse 12 and in verse 14, they're waiting on God. They're praying continually. And I don't want you to think this means that they were in a constant state of in between dear God and an amen But for days, what they are doing is they're surrendering themselves to God. And I think there were conversations and there were meals that were happening, but they were pursuing God together. And this had to have been hard because I think they were ready to do anything Jesus wanted them to do. They're ready to go preach and teach and heal and drive out demons. They're ready to go and proclaim the message to the ends of the earth. Yet the command of Jesus was you go and you wait until the presence, until the Spirit of God comes. And they go and they wait. When it comes to waiting on God, obedience is so important. That we set our pace right with God because when we wait on God, there are times we want to get ahead of God and we want God to speed up to where we are and there are times we can be too slow and God's out in front of us. When it comes to waiting on God, our pace needs to be at God's pace. The fourth thing that I don't want any of us to overlook because a good portion of the book of, uh, of Acts chapter 1 is given to this. There's preparation. That in their preparation, Peter stands up and Peter stops, starts talking to them. And then uh, what, what Peter says, if you go to that next sli- slide, as they prepare, Peter says this, Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men 
who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So as they waited and as they prayed, they felt that what, what needed to happen in the community is for God to raise up a 12th apostle for them for the sake of witnessing, teaching, and preaching for authority. So in their prayer time, this wasn't that they got bored in their prayer time and they needed something to do, so they decided to restructure leadership. This was as they prayed and as they pursued God together, there was a calling to make sure the community was set right so that when God began to move among them, they were ready for it. I think this is so important for you in your life because some of you are waiting on God. You're waiting for something in your life right now. And what you need to know is that in the waiting is where God often refines character and integrity. That as you were waiting for the next move in your life, you're waiting for God to do something in your life. Now is not the time for you to passively wait. It's the time for you to pursue God and to believe that in the waiting, character's being refined. So that when there is a new move in your life, when God begins to do something in your life, your character is ready for it. So the church for days didn't just passively wait or didn't get bored waiting in their pursuing God they felt the, the prompting of the Spirit to get the community right so that they're ready. And the fifth thing is, when there is an outpouring of the Spirit of God, they were ready for it. I don't know what else to call it. Like, they're just ready for it. Because if in your waiting, you allow God to set your heart right, and your eyes right, and your paces right, and you're allowing God to refine your character to shape you into a person of integrity, that when there is the movement of God, you don't resist it, you don't push against it, you don't question it, you are ready for it. So in Acts chapter 2, what you have, beginning in verse 1, is that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they're sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just the twelve apostles, everyone. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. In other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. It's a promise that you see at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. We're at the end of Luke. Here's what Jesus, here's what happens. It says, then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And Jesus told them, this is what is written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you with my fa- send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When you have the Spirit of God break out in Acts chapter 2, you don't have anyone who had been part of praying for those six to ten days. None of them resisted it. You don't have anyone questioning what was happening. You don't have any of them saying, I'm just not ready for this, or maybe this isn't for me. Because their hearts had been set right, their eyes had been set right, their pace was right, because God had been refining and preparing the community, when the Spirit of God broke out among the people, they were ready for it. They were in. What does it mean for us to wait for God more faithfully? 
Not just to passively wait, but to actively wait. Parker Palmer talks about burnout. And one point that Parker Palmer makes is this. That for too many people, they think that burnout is because they had a full tank and now they're empty. But for a lot of people, burnout isn't that they're running on empty. It's that they never had anything in the tank to begin with. And basically the point is that some people think that they're experiencing burnout in life and what they're really experiencing is that they were never burning in life. That they were running on E because they had never allowed themselves to be filled up beyond a quarter of a tank. So as a church, we can have the best ministry for children and youth and marriages and outreach, we can come up with programs and ministries and efforts to feed the needy and care for our homeless friends down on Sycamore View and I-40. But if our roots aren't being established by God, what is it that's going to sustain the church? And, and this isn't just for Sycamore View, why would God bless a church that's not allowing the roots to be firmly established? Why would God bless a church and cause fruit to come from it? If people aren't pursuing God in a way where we're learning to wait expectantly. In Paris, there was a group of people that they wanted to be mesmerized by the city, yet they realized that there were so many people that were so busy going from point A to point B and trying to get to their job and then grab lunch and get back to their job that they were just missing out on the beauty of the city. So there was this one park in particular that what they decided to do, a small group of people, is they decided to get turtles and to put leashes on them like dogs and to walk their turtles through a park. And in doing that, they were letting the turtles set the pace for them so that they could look up and look around and appreciate the beauty of people and the beauty of a city. And what's so crazy about that story is it didn't happen in the year 2020 or 2010. It happened in the year 1840 in Paris, France. The people then thought their lives were so busy they needed some way to slow them down. And imagine now our lives are so busy. Not only are we missing out on life, too often we're missing out on God. N.T. Wright says, He says, it is only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up to God. There was a book written about six years ago called The Three Mile Per Hour God. And the whole premise of the book is, throughout the Bible, you have the image of walking with God that shows up over and over again. And most people walk at about a three mile per hour pace. And maybe that's the pace God wants us to walk at too. To learn to walk and move at the pace of God. So let's slow down enough to hear from God. Slow down enough to see the beauty of God all around us. To slow down enough to know what it is God is inviting us into. And maybe, just maybe, by doing that we will see the kingdom of God come in ways we can never imagine. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, I pray that something in the last few minutes has resonated with the heart in this room. God, if I've said anything that hasn't honored your character, your nature, 
who you are and what you do, may those words fall to the ground and be trampled by you and not be remembered at all. But if I've, if I've spoken truth in any way, truth of who you are and what it is you want from us, may those words sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week. God, through the busyness of life, slow us down enough to trust in you more deeper, to long for you, to pursue you, and as a church, teach us what it means to wait on your movement. We, we don't want to get ahead of you. We don't want to be too far behind you. Help us to move at your pace, to keep in step with your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.